0: Hi, I'm Allison, and I'm Sandhya, and this is The Universal Green, a podcast where we, two Generation Z Asian American teenagers, strive to share our perspectives by exploring issues that not only affect us, but our audience as well.
1: Today, we're going to be talking about restorative justice, and more broadly, the criminal justice system, and re-entry upon being in the prison system. Today we have special guest Professor
0: Ryder, a contributor to the Prison Education Project and professor at UCI, who was well versed in the treatment of individuals in prison. Hi, Mrs. Ryder, thank you so much for joining us today. We wanted to start us off by asking you a few questions. Um, first, can you tell us a little bit about your background and some of your previous work?
2: Sure, and thanks for having me. It's great to be here. Um, So I'm a professor of criminology, law, and society at the University of California, Irvine, and uh, my research has uh, long focused on prison conditions and prison policy, so um, largely around extreme conditions of confinement, like long sentences and long-term solitary confinement. Um, But kind of parallel with that research work to understand how we get the policies we have and what people experience living under those policies, um, I also have long done work around education in prison, so um, I started uh, volunteering in prison when I was in college in a juvenile facility in a local jail doing kind of tutoring and uh, GED preparation. And then I taught, um, I started a program doing similar things on Rikers Island in New York when I was working there after college. And then I taught in the, what was, what used to be called the prison university project at San Quentin when I was in graduate school, which at the time was the only a uh, college program in the state for people who were incarcerated. And now that brings me to um, working at UC Irvine to build a bachelor's degree for incarcerated students out of the University of California system. So um, that's kind of, I think what brought us together today and and some of the the work I've been doing.
1: So along those lines, was there a certain exigence for the pro like starting the prison education project or was there just like um, demand that was just you know cu- accumulating over the t- over the course of however many years you decades worked?
2: Yeah. <laughs> Um, No, that's a great question, and there was in some ways an impetus, and that was, um, there's really been a shift at the first at the state level and now at the federal level in terms of supporting higher education in prison. So when I started teaching in prison, when I was in college in the late 90s, Pell Grants had just been removed for prisoners, so that meant that um, education programs that had operated in prisons were shutting down around the country. Um, And now we're in this really exciting moment where this January Congress restored Pell Grants for people. were incarcerated. So these programs are kind of in this moment of blossoming. But we've been working on this initiative before that, because California has really been ahead of the nation on this. In 2014, our state legislature passed a budget allocation to support community colleges offering associate's degree courses in prisons in the state. So I said in the, in the 2010s, I was teaching in one of the only college programs in the state in prison. Um, after 2014, with this budget initiative, each of the 35 state prisons in California now has face-to-face community college programs in place. Of course, with the pandemic, um, more of that is happening via correspondence and mail. Um, But those programs are continuing to operate, albeit um, painstakingly slowly with the pandemic. Um, So that was a big part of the impetus for this program is that, you know, as of the last few years, there are now thousands of students in this state with associate's degrees clamoring to get, have options for bachelor's degrees and bachelor completion programs. Right now, there's only one other public bachelor's program in the state operating out of Cal State State Los Angeles and Lancaster prison. So this will be the, you know, the second public program in the state. There's there's a bunch of them kind of percolating now. It'll be the first one at a, at a University of California. So it's a really exciting moment. As someone who's been involved in this for almost 20 years, it's a really exciting moment to see the wind shifting and the, the moment to try to build better public infrastructure for this.
0: Yeah, that's incredible. And you're obviously so passionate about it. Um, <laughs> so why do you believe that in this context, restorative justice is important, and how do you think those beliefs have been channeled into your current projects?
2: Uh, it's a great question. And I think, you know, this isn't, I wouldn't say that this project explicitly touts itself as restorative justice, but I think the term gets it exactly the answer to your question why I think this is so important because I think education can be restorative in in many ways. So. At the individual level, I think it's really powerful just to have someone come into prison and say um, they care about you and they want to read your essays and listen to your discussions and show up week after week because a lot of people are incarcerated you know they tend to have lower education levels lower literacy levels because they've fallen through the cracks of the education system because they haven't ever had that person who shows up and really listens and pays attention every week so there's that individual moment that it can just be really empowering you know I like some of my favorite teaching moments have been working in prison in fact teaching math when you sort of see people in there who are middle-aged um, who learned to read as part of one of these college programs and they're kind of understanding, they're coming to understand the idea of an abstract concept like X standing in for a number. Um, and you kind of, and you see the light bulbs go off and this thing that they thought they would never be capable of and this whole new way of thinking and, and especially for someone you know, who's maybe been out of school for a while and didn't kind of have given up that this was possible. Um, Those moments are so are so powerful and exciting. And you really see how that's meaningful to individuals. But I think there's a real structural value to this work also, right, which is that um, we have a tendency to think, oh, we sentence people in California, you commit three felonies, you're sentenced to 25 years to life, we threw away the key and we never have to deal with you again. But the fact is, 95% of people come home to our communities, if not more, eventually. And if they have an education, they are so much more able to um, get a job, earn a living, pay taxes, become voting citizens and active community members. Um, And the evidence is for every dollar we invest in education, we get $5 in social benefit back from a RAND report a few years ago. But I also think, you know, knowing that people come home means that we also have to understand if people are coming back to our communities, what can we do to reduce the stigma of incarceration, right? We, we imposed a punishment, they finished their term, they, they paid their debt to society, sometimes that include fines and fees, certainly might include years if not decades in prison and they come back and we have all these hurdles in place even after people pay their fines that make it and, and do their time, that make it really hard for them to reintegrate. And I think education is a real way to overcome that. You know, One thing I often say is the more education you put between yourself and your criminal record, Um, the the less stigma often, I think, and and part of why I'm so excited to see the UCs involved in this work is that it's a pathway not just to a bachelor degree, but to graduate school, right? It's meaning people who are formerly incarcerated can get doctorates and law degrees and other professional degrees and Um, become kind of leaders in our society in various ways. And I think that is the most powerful way to reduce the stigma of incarceration. So at its core, there is this individual and institutional restorativeness, I think, to this work.
1: Yeah, so reentry to society is just a really big struggle for people. And it's, it's almost like they're permanently labeled as a felon or someone who committed a crime. And that's really not what it is. Oftentimes, it, like, they they still are people at the end of the day, and so it, it should be, um, they should be considered as re-entering citizens, and oftentimes they're not. That label follows them. One thing that particularly interested us about your work is if there's any, if you have any personal success stories um, with what you've done so far, or if there's any quantifiable data about how your work is decreasing recidivism rates, because I think the struggles that people face upon reentry to society can also contribute to those rates increasing. Yeah, yeah.
2: No, it's a it's a great question about data and our program is is just getting off the ground, so we will admit our first cohort in the fall of 2022. So we have no good data about our our cohort um, yet, although as a UC and researchers, we are very excited to collect that data and kind of document what we think will be really great successes, but there is great data out there about how well people do following these programs Um, so um that you know i quoted the rand report about every dollar invested in education gets you 5 dollars of community payback and some of that is about people um becoming tax paying citizens who can hold down jobs some of that is about lower recidivism. And the fact is that, you know, the, anecdotally, the stories I know of people who complete college degrees in prison, there's zero recidivism. And the studies that show this show that the more education you get, the less likely you are to recidivate, and that it can cut recidivism rates in half or more. Um, so there, there is a kind of growing body of powerful evidence. And I think this is part of what's behind the state and national shifts around policy is the sense that whatever we have been doing around mass incarceration has been really expensive with fewer social benefits than we had hoped it would have when we put those investments in. And it seems like education might have the potential to be less expensive and have more benefits of of all these kinds.
0: Yeah, that sounds incredibly interesting. So I know that you said that your prison education project is still in the initial steps, but um, are there any particular challenges that you can foresee or you're worried about? Um, in this obviously massive and incredibly uh, profound project.
2: <laughs> yes, <laughs> so so many. I mean, I think I think we will overcome them, right? I think I think we really have momentum and excitement. But um, I think it's really helpful to talk about the challenges um, because they, you know, they they give you a sense of what individuals face who are incarcerated or coming out of prison, and also a sense of what institutions face and trying to, you know, what it's like to try to move a massive public institution into a new area of work. So one challenge I like to talk about is just the process of admitting students from prison to the University of California, because um, everything has moved online and there are no computers or internet in prison. And so one of the things we're working on is literally how do we get them paper applications that are valid in the system and make sure that we can get them admitted. Um, And I think that just speaks to some of the challenges, right? People are often really surprised that there aren't readily accessible computers or internet in prison in this day and age. And it's something the state is working on, I'm hopeful, that there will actually be a better infrastructure by the time we're offering classes because um the pandemic has really forced people to realize that they need um you know they need resources for video visitation because people can't come in person um they need resources to continue these college programs so there is a movement to build more of that, but but for right now, it doesn't exist. So that's one really big challenge, right? Is how do we how do we work with students with limited, you know, that don't have the resources that we just assume anyone in this day and age has, and certainly any student in terms of internet and computers. Another challenge is just figuring out kind of the logistics of offering courses, right? One of the challenges the state has faced is that um, it's easy to go in and just offer. You know, people always are interested for various reasons to teach in prison. And then once they do it, they realize it's really rewarding and they want to do it more. But that means that sometimes these programs roll out and just offer whatever they can get people to teach. And it's not necessarily structured to make sure that students get a degree or that they get an associate's degree that's transferable to a Cal State or a UC, or they did get a degree that's meaningful to them and that can help them get a job they want. And so that's that's another place where a lot of the work is, is making sure we offer the right classes to get people to graduation, making sure we can offer enough of them and get all of that structured and encouraging other people to do that. We're really lucky to have a community college partner that's committed to offering the right set of courses to make sure students can transfer into the University of California system, that's key. Um, so that's a big piece, right? Is doing that work and trying to encourage other people to do that work. And then the last thing I would say you know, we are a public university and uh, part of the challenge is fundraising right and and we're, we are really, really lucky that um, the University of California system has an infrastructure for supporting students tuition. Um, and that's a huge challenge for a lot of these programs is figuring out how to cover tuition, because obviously the students can't. That's a hope with the reinstatement of pell grants that that'll be a little easier but it's still very complicated to get those applications in people in prison it's really hard to find their their debt histories and educational histories to actually make them eligible um, and so the university of california has a system more robust than pell that will incorporate these students and, and called blue and gold and that's that's an exciting piece but that's you know we still need We need counselors, Um, we need to pay for the cost of getting faculty the hour plus to the prison, the travel costs. We need someone on site, you know, as opposed to, we want these students to have as similar a possible experience as they would have on the University of California campus. Um, but we need to make sure we have someone who's interfacing between the physical prison and the physical campus. And um, so we're doing a lot of work to fundraise. And that's, I'm sort of, when I started this project, I didn't imagine how much time I would spend um, convincing people that they should give this project money. And I think, you know, I really think it will become part of the state budgets. That's the direction we're moving in. and And that's what makes it doable and exciting. But there is, there, there are just startup costs that are kind of, irreducible, I've gotten them pretty low but so that's that's another piece of where the work is.
1: Yeah so obviously we know that um, your project right now is in it's very it's taking baby steps right now and your cohort is um, there, there's a long feature for your project but we just wanted to know that once like what are the plans or if there's any plans for expansion after you um, finish
2: with your first cohort of students? Absolutely. And that is, we are talking about this as a demonstration project. Um, So the idea is that we really hope that we can um, show how this works and that it will be widely replicable. So um, expansion is kind of, that's kind of our ultimate goal. And we talk about expansion in two ways. One, um, for the pilot cohort, we're offering a degree in sociology because that's what the, uh, the community college is offering the associate's degree in. And so it's a very streamlined pathway into the bachelor's degree in sociology. Um, but we hope to offer more majors. And we hope to give people a choice just like you would have on a university campus. Um, and so that's at UCI expanding to include, you know, in our first cohort, we'll have 20 to 25 students. We hope to continue year after year and then expand the majors to include additional groups. But our, our much bigger goal is that we will model what this collaboration between a community college, a prison and a UC, we often call it a triangle, That will model that triangle so that it'll be readily replicable across the state with other UCs. So, our hope is that every UC will be teaching bachelor's, um, offering bachelor's degrees in prisons across the state within five to 10 years. Um, Because this is, you know, with the community college rollout in the state, this is. The vision of higher education in California is that there's a community college at Cal State and at UC, and you can kind of work your way through the system. And so, seeing all three tiers of that system involved in this process in this collaboration is is really exciting, and I think means that whereas many other states have had kind of private colleges offering you know very um, well reviewed programs of bachelor's degrees, like sixty Minutes did one on Bard a few years ago. I think those programs tend to accept you know. 10, maybe 20 students a year at most. And we're talking about a public university program that could accept hundreds if not thousands of students in any given year to really scale up the the number of incarcerated people getting bachelor's degrees and to create pathways for people who come out of prison to ensure that they can complete a bachelor's degree on the outside also.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Um, for our audience out there, um, how can they support you and your team? Do you have any resources that maybe they can look into? <laughs>
2: That's awesome. I'm glad you asked. Um, so we have a website uh, that's called, it's it's an easy one. It's called prisoneducation.uci.edu. Um, the program, the acronym for the program is LIFTED, Leveraging Inspiring Futures Through Educational Degrees. But the, the website is just, you don't even have to remember the acronym, prisoneducation.uci.edu. And they're um, i'm I'm proud of our website. We have some We have some great stories from formerly incarcerated students who are on the UC campuses already. Um, and we have a link where we're in the process of getting a newsletter off the ground so you can kind of follow our work. We haven't yet, but there's a place where you can kind of let us know if you'd like to receive that, and then you'll get a surprise in your inbox eventually. Um, and we also have a donate button. And we're working, you know, if you if you work for an organization that does charitable giving projects or you um, have, you know, contacts who might be interested in supporting something like this, um, it's really it tends to be something that I think does best with local level support and networks. And so it's great, you know, um, signing up for our mailing list will kind of, um, I think get you clued into possible ways to support our students, both financially and, you know, through networks, right? We're really excited to kind of build groups of people who are excited to mentor and work with these students over the longer term in our our communities.
1: Well, thank you so much for talking with us and you're doing great work. And um, yeah, it's really inspiring.
2: Thanks. Thanks for your great questions and being excited to cover this work. <laughs> of course.
1: So like Professor Ryder said, education plays a big part in the re-entry of citizens uh, who have been formerly incarcerated and it decreases recidivism rates. But I think beyond that, education has a lot of, it plays a lot of different roles in society. And I think that restorative justice in the field of education is really important. So we wanted to talk more about that as well. Yeah, so restorative justice
0: in a nutshell is kind of based on the understanding that a crime is a violation of people and relationships. And so the principles of restorative justice are based on respect, compassion, and inclusivity rather than strict punishment or violence. And so um, it encourages meaningful engagements and accountability, and it provides opportunity for healing, reparation, and reintegration rather than ostracizing those who have made mistakes from our society. And it can take on a lot of different forms at a lot of different stages in the criminal justice system.
1: Yeah, and it's based on three foundational principles. So the first is that crime causes harm and justice should focus on repairing that harm. The second is that people most affected by the crime should be able to participate in its resolution. And the third is that the responsibility of the government is to maintain order and and of the community to build peace. So really what it emphasizes is summarized perfectly in the corner posts, um, and there's four of those. So one is the inclusion of all parties. The second is encountering the other side. The third is making amends for the harm. And the fourth is reintegration of the parties into their communities. So it provides both victims and offenders with more satisfaction that justice has been done than in the traditional criminal justice system because it facilitates more of a connection and more communication. And I think communication is something that the criminal justice system lacks. It just Uh, slaps on a sentence to someone who's an offender with no real dialogue between the person that they've harmed or analyzing behavior and emotions. I think that the criminal justice system has had a very black and white approach to violence and crime. It doesn't really analyze motives or circumstances. It doesn't foster communication, and it doesn't take a proactive re- approach to how crime can be stopped in the early stages it, when communities are underserved. Does that play a role in crime? There's have been there been a lot of research about that, and yet the criminal justice system still hasn't taken that into account, which is why restorative justice, is such an appealing option.
0: Exactly. A lot of the times it feels as though the criminal justice system can be very superficial in nature and in what it represents. It often just looks at the action and the consequences and fails to realize the larger trends and meanings behind a lot of what's happening in our society, and that so much of that can be ailed by systems like restorative justice that allow people to look deeper and treat cases. With the humanity that they deserve. Because um, I think a lot of us can feel desensitized by, you know, we have like criminal cop shows and we have Judge Judy. But more than that, it's it seems almost like it happens every day. And we forget that these are people's lives at stake, that these they have families and they have hobbies and they have interests. And restorative justice is such a way to help them gain back that place in society that you know, that sentence sometimes can deny.
1: It also fosters emotional well-being. Um, It reduces the uh, crime victim's propensity to desire violent revenge against their offenders. And it also reduces crime victims' post-traumatic stress symptoms and the related costs of it. Um, So on a school level, you may be wondering, how is this implemented? So say in high schools, there can be high discipline rates and Um, underserved populations. And because of racial profiling, which still happens on school campuses, um, students who get disciplined may tend to be of one race. So this is really where restorative justice can come into play because kids may be in an underserved school or just not have a support system that they need. And that can lead to um, behavioral problems or people acting out. And implementing restorative justice helps rectify that issue before it results in a disciplinary problem and it fixes it for the future because people have aired out their feelings and they've found methods to um, prevent behavioral responses to conditions Um, and a perfect example of this in the real world is Brooklyn. Um, there's a community in Brooklyn that has five schools where they have on-site restorative justice counselors that are there full time, and they help see kids whenever um, they help see kids whenever they're feeling like they need to talk about it, and they also help confront disciplinary issues. And this is critically important because restorative justice counselors offer just another dimension. And they also ensure that restorative justice and you know a less punitive approach is being taken care of because in underserved communities and just in the public school system in general, teachers are so overworked. They have so many classes, especially in high school, they have so many students. It's hard to make um, connections with students. And it's also hard to take the time to address a student's problems when you know um that that they are having them because you're stretched so incredibly thin so that's where counselors come in and um by addressing all sides of the issues and stressing the psychological and behavioral side it really reduces the amount of disciplinary problems um, in in a school and people really get the help they need so it's really positive and um preventative
0: exactly how Sandia said it i just have another example of restorative justice truly working on an educational level Um, in california oakland unified school district began using the program the restorative justice program at a failing middle school in 2006 and so within three years the pilot school actually saw a decrease in suspensions by 87 percent and a corresponding decrease in violence And so um, near the end, it was so successful that by 2011, um, uh, OUSD overhauled the system and made restorative justice the new model for handling disciplinary problems. And um, David Yuram, OUSD's first program manager of the restorative justice system, mentions that restorative justice is a major cultural shift from a punitive model to a restorative model, as Sonia had previously uh, mentioned. And so this not only works on Older kids, um, like the ones in Brooklyn, like the ones in high school, it already wo- it works on younger ones as well because it teaches conflict man- management in a safe and more effective way.
1: Yeah, and um, just tying it back to what Professor Ryder said about the prison aspect of it, I think that restorative justice can be really impactful at an early age because, like Allison said earlier, people tend to be desensitized to criminal issues and violence, um, and so talking about the problems preventing disciplinary issues and also reducing violence like Oakland did it's really helpful to fix the propensity to you know like become accustomed to the prison system and the criminal justice system because you aren't uh you're getting the help you need earlier you're not you know facing problems in the juvenile prison in the juvenile like delinquency system and all of that kind of stuff so it's it's really a great approach when you think about it in terms of where society is going in the future, because prisons are not the best way to rectify crime issues. And they increase recidivism rates because as Professor Ryder said, re-entry um, to society after incarceration is so incredibly hard because the label of, you know, a a formerly incarcerated person follows you. It's something that these people have to live with constantly. And so providing, not only providing resources to help them in that situation, in um, after prisons, it's also important to start early and to focus on where future society is gonna take us. So we no longer have to worry about that label following people. So generally, um, compared to traditional non-restorative approaches, Restorative justice was found to be more successful at achieving each of its four major goals. And in other words, it was it was based in um, the concept of victim satisfaction, uh, victim-offender satisfaction, which it improved and increasing offender compliance with restitution and decreasing the recidivism of offenders when compared to more con- conditional criminal justice responses. So those would be, you know, incarceration, probation, court-ordered, programs and all of that stuff. So restorative programs were significantly more effective than these approaches in all four of the, um, in all four of its goals. Again, increasing satisfaction, emotional well-being, um, and really rectifying the psychological and behavioral aspect of why that person committed the crime they did. In many states, restorative justice practices significantly have reduced recidivism and improved restitution rates, and although some people may view restorative justice as soft on crime, the approach actually improves the dynamics of how society deals with youthful offenders, and as juvenile recidivism rates decrease, the adult prison population, it's it's probable that the adult population can diminish as well. So once detractors fully understand what restorative justice is and is not, it can become a more commonplace in all locations, and it really can move us towards a society where incarceration isn't a isn't as pervasive of a practice, or um, where we really don't need prisons.
0: And with all said, we understand how this can sound kind of overwhelming, you know, such an amazing and incredible thing that people are doing around the world but you know how do we put this on the local level how do we start doing that with our children as soon as we can and a lot of experts advocate for just having respectful agreements especially when conflicts arise you know giving students a stake in especially in the classroom and making the classroom successful and so teachers who want to implement it should you know make sharing circles or mediation for misbehavior and spending more time learning more about the process rather than you know the consequence because it's easy to get tied up in what happens after but I think it, while we are doing that we should understand what happens before and not simply ignore that and take everything at face value from what we have been taught and with that we wanted to lead into this week's Rice of the episode um, and this week's rice is arancini, and arancini is a, a Sicilian cheese-filled snack where you take risotto and then you put cheese and you put it in um, breadcrumbs and deep fry it. And so, like what we're saying for restorative justice, arancini, you know, takes risotto, a very tradition traditional Italian dish, and you know, puts a twist on it and makes it new. And so, in a similar way, restorative justice is recognizing crimes and Um, the disadvantages certain people have in life and then addressing them in a new way that is positive and allows for improvement and so with that we wanted to thank you so much for listening and we cannot wait to hear from you next episode